Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John, you know, there's Germany, which is a huge deal, way bigger than the U.S. press is giving it. And there's the budget in the United Kingdom. I guess we've got to go like we did yesterday on Arsenal Tottenham. The budget process in the United Kingdom, John, seems so different than over here. What's a distinctive feature from the lad from Coventry? Well, it's a parliamentary system, and I think it's a lot easier to execute the budget in the United Kingdom than it is here in the United States, for one. I mean, there's so many people that have told me when I first moved over here, when they introduce the budget here in the United States, it's a little bit different because it takes Mm -hmm. a long, long time to actually get any kind of approval. In the UK, you have a majority Mm -hmm. in Parliament, the Chancellor introduces the budget, and it's kind of just done. You've accept what comes through, and then that's it through the term of Parliament. Very good. And then they redo it the following year. Well, spreads are in. I mean, you know, that's where we are. they got to deal with that in the United Kingdom and everywhere else. Why don't you bring in uh, our gentleman from Wells Fargo, John Farrell. George Borey joining us now, of course, uh, SBC Securities Global Equity Strategist on on the market. George, it's great to have you with us on the program. Looking at the situation at the moment, Tom, as I'm looking at the markets, I'm looking at a situation where things, futures are positive at the moment by about 68 points. S&P 500 futures up by about six or seven points. The story for me, looking at the situation in the United States, is whether they get tax reform done. Right. Is that going to happen? And is it going to be the bill that we currently see? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, It's good to be on the show this morning. You know, the tax bill, you know, it something is going to get done. People keep saying that. I think it's been repeated over and over. That's certainly our firm view. And that's what what we expect. We don't think it's sort of what is exactly proposed today. You know, we're going through the the process of of iteration uh, between the House and the Senate. Um, What seems very likely, it's it's sort of a pro, it's a pro-business tax bill likely to implement meaningful tax cuts for corporations. And it's, it's attempting to incentivize companies to both bring money home uh, through repatriation and reinvest that money here in the U.S. Um, you know, on balance, that should be a good thing. But the question of whether it ultimately gets done is probably on yeah. the other side of the ledger when you think about what's happening with individuals. It's my fault. We have a surveillance correction here. I told John Farrow's HSBC, and I was I was looking east. Wells Fargo is like the stagecoaches, John. Like yeah. wherever you go, they have stagecoaches, and it's far, far west in San Francisco. But HSBC is farther west across the Pacific. That you have to get to Asia, Tom. I I (laughs) completely went down in flames on that. Excuse me. Continue. No, I mean, and so I think tax reform becomes it absolutely pivotal for for next year. And and in the corporate bond market, the area that that I focus on, you know that that becomes a very big issue. So what a company's going to do with a that that tax cut, and then ultimately with uh, access to sort of this money they have sitting all over the world. And our basic expectation is they're going to try and use it. They're going to lever up that saved earnings from a tax cut. They're going to lever up that cash that sits overseas in in various jurisdictions, and that could drive a little bit of investment here in the U.S., but I think what it's really going to drive is a big increase in M&A. Um, you know, there, there are a whole so host you, of sectors. So you bring up the M&A, George. Through. That's fascinating because AT&T is front mm. and center worldwide today. Yeah. A big conversation about whether that deal is going to get blocked. We thought this administration would have the doors open for some big deals. If these companies bring that money home and want to do big M&A, are you confident that it gets done? 
Well, I think certainty for for tax reform is is important, and and I think if you look at M and A activity over the past year, uh, it's down about thirty percent from the prior year. We peaked in M and A volumes back in two thousand fifteen. Sixteen was a pretty good year as well. This year, it's been a notable slowdown, and I think there's there's sort of two issues at play. One is political, as, as you mentioned, yeah, uh, and that has a few very deal specific issues attached to it. Uh, but the other issue is is really just what is your tax structure? A, a lot of a lot of um, M and A deals are are driven around how how tax how, yeah. how the tax structure sets up for the deal. Once that's clear, then you have a lot mm-hmm. of industries, several very big industries that have a, a significant amount of pipeline right. M um, and A activity that I think ultimately comes through. George Bory with us with Wells Fargo, head of credit strategy. George, Wells Fargo's got a huge platform, a, a nationwide platform. What is the analysis of the entire team, your credit strategy, your economics of John Sylvia and the rest? What is the analysis of this tax cut bill? If it actually goes through, does it really, yeah. does it help business? For, you know, forget about the middle class, forget about John Farrell, forget about me, forget about Rich Truman. Does it help business as it's called? I think on balance it should. And and I think what it what it can do um, you know, a, a material tax cut to corporations improves cash flow. And then it really becomes what do companies do with the cash flow? I think the actual economic impact will be modest, you know, a few tenths of a few of a percent uh, over a couple of years. Um, that's the, sort of the actual economic impact. But corporate activity should actually kind of kind of pick up. And I think that's where you could start to see, you know, maybe the momentum impact of, of, of a tax change. The, the other issue is it does incentivize companies um, to spend a little bit more on capital spending. That is a mild positive. And to utilize kind of these big pools of cash that are, that are sitting all around the world. And then the last bit, which doesn't really, I think, get a lot of attention, um, is it, it's intended uh, to pull money back to the U.S., a corporate tax rate of 20% for America makes the U.S. corporate structure very competitive versus the rest of the developed world and even some of the not-so-developed world. So that, that low cost base could actually kind of pull some investment into the country. To be fair, it is a redistribution of taxes. And so yeah. you know, sort of that's where the economic impact is a little uncertain because the individual doesn't benefit as much as you know, maybe you know, the economy would require. My, I don't know what your mail's like, John, John Farrell. My mail's brutal on this, vicious. In, in what sense? People can't stand it. It's a top to bottom. Uh, every politics, people are really upset about these two proposals. I just think looking at the corporate side of things, George, you mentioned the competitiveness of, of U.S. companies. When I look at U.S. multinationals, I don't see a competitiveness problem. They're dominating pretty much every sector they're in. So what's the argument there that we need to come down to 20 percent? Why? Well, I, I, I think it, it, it helps improve the competitiveness of the U.S. It actually draws capital to the U.S. It, it creates a competitive capital structure on an already competitive capital base. And I think that, you know, that ensures that, you know, U.S. economic competitive competitiveness kind of persists for the foreseeable future. And, and I think there's also, there's a much bigger rotation here that governments sort of around the world have been evolving to. And that's, you know, less taxes on corporations and more taxes on individuals. And the U.S. is trying to thread that needle, yeah. if you will, and take it one well, step further. How much price down should I enjoy 
before I sweat? Is it like <laughs> price down of a year's coupon, price down of two years? When does price down become painful down? Yeah, yeah. Pain, you know, I, I think you're talking about price down uh, yields up. In that bonds. would be true. Yes, yeah, very yes, good. John, yes, make of a, course. excuse like me, that. John Farrell, make I, a, <laughs> Michael Barr, this is too complicated did, for did a he, news did, guy. Did, did we just get a bonds joke on, <laughs> yes. on, on Bloomberg Radio? It's a bond joke. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm a bond guy. It's hard to when get does, that When does me. the pain set in? Now, I think it, it depends on the pace of the pain. You can agree. You, you Strongly can be, agree. You know, it's sort of cut by a thousand, you know, death by a thousand cuts. You know, sometimes it it hurts a little over a long period of time versus one fell swoop. And that seems to be the environment we, we seem to be moving into. We're not quite there yet. So when bond, and you look at the front end of the curve, I think is a good, a good example of that. Yeah. As yields have crept a little bit higher. I you, believe price went down. Price went down. Oh, I'm shocked. And, uh, and you are seeing some dislocations. <clears throat> My, I think I think high, the, some of the dislocations you've seen in the high yield market right. over the last couple of weeks yeah, are yeah. a function of those higher yields John, and, and lower prices. Some dislocations is George Borey talk for somebody just gave up their bonus, some two-year <laughs> institutional portfolio. George Borey, thank you so much for uh, spreading the glee and the gloom. Uh, he is with Wells Fargo, head of credit strategy. We greatly appreciate his attendance. It is a classic book, and, and John Farrow, I'm sorry to say next year it will be 30 years on. Jeffrey Birnbaum, the outstanding Jeffrey Birnbaum with the outstanding Alan Murray, showdown at Gucci Gulch. Steve Bell has never worn Gucci, but he was there, and he's with us now. He's with the Bipartisan uh, Policy Center and was with Senate Budget in 1986 and is truly one of the wise men of Washington. Steve Bell, what was it like two weeks before they got this thing through the House in 1986? What was it like? I think it was great enthusiasm. Um, everyone knew that the votes were there. Uh, you had bipartisan support. You had support from the president, of course. Um, <clears throat> and I think there was a really upbeat uh, mood. Uh, when you get something bipartisan like that, you have Republicans and Democrats and the executive branch all on the same page. Uh, you really can do something historic like the 1986 Act. And I think that's the big difference between yeah. now and 30 years ago. Within this, can you predict with your immense experience of Baker, Daschle, Mitchell and the rest, can you predict the next four weeks? Yeah, I, I'm going to give give it a shot. Uh Actually, uh, one, I think they're going to run into a lot of problems on the floor of the Senate uh, with the tax bill over reasons that not many people have mentioned. One, the likelihood that this will increase the deficit much larger than people expect. Uh, number two, I think they know that if the deficit estimates go up, it's going to make it very hard to pass all the spending bills that keep the government open just uh, three weeks from now, December 8th. And at the bottom of it, there are elements in here which seem to favor um, real estate, uh, high-income uh, recipient, uh, high-income earners, and the possibility that the fact that uh, certain provisions may advantage the real estate industry could make Democrats start to talk about the president's empire in real estate again, as they did uh, last year. So I. You know, I, I know that we'll solve state and local in some way. We'll solve the mortgage interest, interest deduction in some way. So we'll take care of those things, and that's what's been in the news. But underlying all this are these generalized fears 
what is this going to do to deficit and debt? Because we have a debt ceiling that's about ready to hit us probably early next year. Yeah. And, you know, if we get to, if we get to a trillion-dollar deficit estimate, mm-hmm. which I think we will for FY19, um, that's really yeah. going to bring people's attention back to that. Uh, Steve, Steve Bell, let me bring in John Farrell, who wears glasses that look like Howard Baker's Is that from another like? time and place. Yes. Okay, <laughs> I'll take that. Steve Bell, help me out here. What's the rush? Yes, sir. Oh, the, the Republicans need – this is really simple, and it's really kind of funny. They are frantic to get something done. So they don't really care about what people say about Roy Moore. All they want is to get this done before, if Moore loses in Alabama, before his Democratic uh, opponent would be seated in the Senate. That would be about December 26th. So the rush, one, we got to do something because they're frantic. Two, we have to do it before December 26th because we'll lose one vote in the Senate, which is critical. And number three, we have to be honest about this bill. This is a bill that was designed to cut taxes for business, an admirable goal. But they said, you know, that's not going to fly in this day and age. So we have to put in some stuff that looks like we're helping the average worker. And that's really, in my view, strategically how it was concocted. So I think for many people, they're already looking ahead to the next election, the midterms. What are the consequences if this bill gets rushed through in the midterms next year? Well, number one, Republicans think it'll really enhance their chances to retain the House and Senate, especially in the House, where there, there, are, there are some questions about retention. Number two, Democrats, and we here at the Bipartisan Policy Center have active Democrats as well as active Republicans. You do have Democrats? Demo- you have Democrats in the building? Oh, my goodness, yes. Oh, my word. <laughs> Surveillance break exclusive. Yeah, and one of the very best of them said to me, you guys think you should pass this because it'll help you in 2018. We think you should pass it because it's going to help us in 2018. And what do you think? Well, I think it's going to help the Democrats. Uh, I, I, I think this bill, by the time it's costed out next year by uh, independent people like the Congressional Budget Office, by the time the distribution tables, who gets how much uh, benefit from it, uh, I, I think this will lead to a lot of nice 30-second ads and a lot of social media ads. So, Steve, when these senators go back to their constituents this week, does the penny drop? No, I think they have got talking points. You'll get, and you saw the talking points on the House floor. You're going to get a $1,000 tax break, I promise you. They will not say that that tax break is going to expire in seven years. Uh, we're going to have a cut for business, and we'll have thousands and thousands of new jobs. They won't say we're already at the lowest unemployment in decades. So they will be able to get away, I think, this week with people's attention really devoted to Thanksgiving and stuff. I think they'll get away this week without a lot of of, of kickback. Uh, I think two weeks from now, when we know the results, uh, three weeks from now, when we know the results of the Alabama election, um, when we have had people really take a look at this bill and they read editorials in the paper saying, hey, we don't get a big tax cut like you said. It's so-and-so and so-and-so. I I think then the erosion will start. Yeah. Steve, something we've explored on this program in the last 24 hours is the, the politics of the campaign trail and the economics that underpinned the win of President Donald Trump, we seem to have a big divorce between that 
and the policies they're executing down in DC at the moment. It does not appear to me that this tax bill would address the inequality that came up on the campaign trail. Does it address those things for you? Oh, no. Uh, I, I think when you take a look at some of the details, um, for example, if you're a graduate assistant, yeah. and you're making $20,000 a year you know, to, to be a graduate assistant, and they forgive you your tuition, that's yeah. very common now. Tens of thousands of people do that. Now, under this bill, you would be taxed on the tuition benefit. So let's say the tuition was 40000 you would be taxed on that 40000 which means you wouldn't be making $20,000 okay. for your work. Okay, well, Steve Bell, let's take this to Washington. Good morning, 99.1 FM, Washington. Let's say that graduate assistant is at American University. Okay, it's right? a killer school outside Washington. A lot of people, good morning, David Gregory, a lot of people go there who really get things done down the road. Is this just a mean-spirited idea? I mean, you've been doing this since time began where does this, I don't, what's the right word, John? There's a British word for this. Like, where does this, this mean-spiritedness come from little teensy-weensy thing to the next teensy-weensy thing? How do, I can't is, think of the word. Is this though. original? Oh, it's original, and, 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 and frankly, it's because they need the money. It's just that. Oh, simple. come on. Well, what are they going to get out of a graduate student at American University, coast to coast? A couple not million bucks. Yeah, not very much. But I, I, there are provisions in here which make you scratch your head. I agree 100% okay. with that. You wonder you. who is mad at the universities. Well, apparently somebody uh, on the Senate Finance Committee or the Finance Committee staff really doesn't like this break and doesn't like perhaps, as you said, American universities. So I, I've got to tell you that one has uh, caused a lot of discussion among the universities because it could have a significant uh, impact on graduate assistance yeah. and graduate education. Okay, but there's some other things yeah. in here. Let's take a look at this so-called 1031 transfer. This is a crazy thing. You buy a piece of art for $5 million, now it's worth 20 You come to me and you say, Bell, you've got something worth 20 I want to trade you even. Under the law now, you yeah. went from 5 to 20 but you weren't taxed on it. That was just considered 1031 <clears throat> transfer. There's language yeah. in this bill, there's language in this bill that prohibits that, takes away your ability just to do that trade, except yeah. for real estate development. Okay. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Okay. Steve, we got to leave it there. Steve Bell, thank you so much. The Bipartisan Policy Center today. With us right now, Tobias Lefkovich of Citigroup. And Tobias, I really want to go to the wheelhouse, which is the Citigroup Surprise Index. It's actually very cool. A lot of people outside Citigroup follow it what what does it say right now um so the data is actually pretty strong if you look at the city u.s economic surprise index um it's kind of nearing five-year highs that gets me a little uh -huh. bit concerned that it could roll because there is some inherent mean reversion to the model um but i'm also hoping the intellectual capital comment was not directed to me i think no, it's, no. Uh, it's okay. very much directed at me tobias don't worry about that <laughs> going into next year it's kind of shut your eyes and hope for more it, from what i'm seeing in some of the forecasts on the s p year end 2018 so I, I think it's you know a question about what you think the concerns 
around Fed policy, for example, relative to economic trend. In other words, if economic trend is actually looking stronger, and most of our leading indicators suggest it is, then what's the pace at which the Fed moves, and do you kind of cap off the, oppor- the upside opportunity? There's also some element of are we bringing forward some of next year's return into this year as a result of, for example, tax policy initiatives. Tobias, I think a big theme for many is waiting for that late cycle behavior, that melt up (laughs) in equity markets. A lot of people thought it would happen this year. We've not seen it. Are you starting to see signs of it at least that we're at that late cycle melt up phase in, in the bull market? So we haven't really seen signs of it in terms of big money flow coming in, which is where the melt up would come. We are seeing our for example, our panic euphoria uh, index or model, which tracks sentiment in a variety of ways, starting to edge higher. It's still in neutral territory, but it's the upper end of neutral. We've said that it's sending somewhat of a yellow caution sign at the moment, uh, but not a red flag quite yet. Um, so I do see it in that sense, but not in the money flow. And I, I think investors are caught, we refer to it as being caught between two very powerful forces, FOMO, the fear of missing out, yep. and FOMU, the fear of messing up. So they're, they're, they're well, you know, they had a nice run, they're little do we overstay our welcome concern kind of question pops up or did i miss the run do i come in now and then it comes down and i mess up well let's do the look back the dow 12 months trailing 24 percent return s&p 17 percent return nasdaq 24 could almost round it up to 27 percent at return i've been told that it's a single digit world i'm not observing that when does it become a single digit world so we suspect next year, but part of it is also we've had double-digit earnings growth in the first two, three quarters of the year. And up and down the income statement, you've got the same kind of constructive oomph revenues down through the margins? It, it is happening that way, but it's also momentum-driven. So you're seeing, for example, you, you cited a number of statistics, but if you look at momentum-driven factors, you're probably up 37%. So it's not across the board. Certain areas like energy telecom, you've lost money this year. Um, What is fascinating is if you look at the constituents of the S&P, a lot of people have talked about FANG, for example, about 50% of the S&P 500 constituents have outperformed the S&P this year. So it's a very widespread rally. It is not just about four or five names. Speaking of momentum to bias, it seems to me that this year, at the beginning of the year, if I'd said that's in a bubble, that's in a bubble, that's in a bubble, and you bought the bubbles, you've done pretty well this year. Someone might have said the fangs were in a bubble. You've done well. Bitcoin, Eva. We won't go there, Tobias. Don't worry. <laughs> you could have said that was a, a bubble for the last five years, and you would have done beautifully this year. What do you make of the momentum that we have seen through 17, and how strong is it? So, look, there is very powerful trends in technology that are driving some of the names that, that, you've, that you're high, or hinting at. And we have... You know, just think about what's going on yeah. in technology today. You've got cybersecurity, you've got cloud, you've got mobility, you've got um, the, the robotics, automation, virtual reality. I mean, there's yeah. so many different powerful trends that are forcing companies to spend yeah. and that online versus brick and mortar type of shift that's been going on because of convenience right. of sitting at home in your jammies and ordering stuff. Tobias, nobody cares. Fills <laughs> up in Montreal saying, ask Tobias. There's 31 teams in the National Hockey League. The Habs are 30th in goals per game, 29th in goals against, 30th in power play. and tw- I- I've never seen a team that is that bad. 
When do you take over as coach? I'm, I'm, I'll take over as general manager or president of hockey operations any day. I, I apologize to my city employers, but I'm gone. Mr. Corbett, he's gone. <laughs> Tobias is so gone with that opportunity. Um, I, I, can, I can handle people yelling at me, but Mark Bergerman has a lot to do, answer for. Do you for. think that, that mere mortals that are non-Canadians understand this is a national disgrace? I don't think they quite understand they it. Don't and I don't think, I don't think uh, that yeah. uh, Justin Trudeau's socks can solve it either. Well, there would be that as well. Phil, thank you so much for emailing. and love to hear from you. And there's your Canadians, uh, <laughs> Montreal Canadians review with Mr. Lefkovich. Assuming tax overhaul passes. We just had a whole conversation with Tobias Lefkovich, Citigroup Chief U.S. Equity Strategist, on the markets without discussing politics in D.C. Is there a reason for that, Tobias? Look, the if you get tax reform, you can add nine ten dollars to earnings estimates next year. So it does have you know real market impact. The question that you'd have to ask yourself a little bit is: Does the market give the same multiple to tax related earnings as it does to operating efficiencies within companies? And that I think is a fair one. Um, we 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 wrote about this early in the year that we didn't think the market would give you quite the same multiple for the tax benefits. But again, it would be very instrumental to the earnings comparisons year over year. You've got the headline tax rate to bust, and then you've got the effective tax rate that these companies mm-hmm. already pay. So talk to me about sector to sector where the biggest difference is actually going to be, be made, effective tax rate now mm-hmm. versus what they'll pay perhaps next year and beyond. So if you look in aggregate for the S&P 500 tax rate over the past couple of years, has been about effectively 27%. And if it drops to 20%, that's the seven-point differential. Um, we've, we have already in our estimates for next year a 25% rate, so about $4 of incremental earnings capacity already built in, but you'd get about $10 more if you went down to 20%. Certain sectors, like financials, regional banks, for example, clearly very uh, exposed. Some other ones, utilities, which are very domestic, would probably have to give that back in the rate base, so they wouldn't really capture the benefits of it. So it really depends. you got to go industry by industry. The big multinationals clearly don't have as much exposure here. I I don't want you to comment on Citigroup and get you in trouble with your team, but (laughs) but as a general rule, I believe we have curve flattening. What does that do to finances? Does Tobias move money aside? So clearly, the, the two things that you watch very carefully in the, in the banks would be bond yields in general and the steepness of the curve to determine stock price performance. Um, there are a few other things going on, less regulation, um, car, you know, the, the capital return stories of the, of the banks that also generate um, some interest. I think the biggest story that is not really being told in the banks right now is that we're going to see a turn in the fourth quarter and a pickup later in, the year, later in next year um, at, into the commercial industrial loan activity. There's a six-quarter lag between the senior loan officer survey from the Federal Reserve Board on CNI or commercial industrial yeah. lending standards and loans. And I think that's going to be the kind of growth story for banks that aren't necessarily being captured. But you're right. The curve does matter. Well, do you, do you have, can you give us a beeps number? I mean, I know you're not bond guy, but it's, but, I mean, Mr. Gross is talking tensions at 210 spread, 50, 45 basis points. George Bory at Wells Fargo agrees with that. A lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. Do you have a number? In your I, head I don't look. Good? I don't have a real number. Where does everybody get nervous? Because it's hard to really get into everybody's yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, but but I think as you start getting closer and closer to flat, if it's twenty five basis points, twenty, people are going to get very nervous about economic conditions, and the Fed may have to kind of manipulate <clears throat> the longer end of the curve a bit. Um, you know, you break below fifty, people will start to worry about twenty five. You break below but twenty five, and everybody's going to be yeah. terrified. I, mean, I should point out that Mr. Lefkovich and I have been through this a few times. Uh, before let us talk about hydrocarbons have you made a and you're putting together your 2018 view (coughs) excuse me we're sort of rangy 
but I would say almost at the high end of range. Can you, with your terrific commodities team, say a bottom to the oil market finally at five zero? So I tend to defer, as you know, to Ed Morris on this and who sure, runs that commodity team. Yes. They're, they're a little nervous that oil prices have run a bit too high right now and that there's some pullback nearer term. But I think generally speaking, they're still thinking that we can get into the low 60s um, on a WTI basis. But, you know, think of it this way. Um, as you get recount uh, growth rates start to diminish, which we've already started to see. It's usually when energy stocks start to pick up. The market starts to sense that there's some rebalancing coming, especially if you think about shale projects yeah. that have three-year lifespans. So as you're not adding lots and lots of rigs, eventually the production comes off and you get some balance. So I think that's more the story in the stocks, less about less about the commodity. Let's then go to what's kept us going here. And I guess it's, it's I, I don't, I'm not as cynical as to say it's financial engineering, but dividend growth and share buyback have been a huge part of the story. I know Zero Hedge has that great chart where they go, the percentage of the market move that's been from share buybacks. Have share buybacks been the strength of this bull market? Do you buy that theory? No, I don't. I think what, we, what we've actually looked at is what's what's the change in shares outstanding as opposed to how much money is being spent on buybacks. The peak year for buybacks in dollar terms, for example, was 2007, right before the market's cr Interesting. You know, crapped and out. You, you're, you're looking at the unit change right. in shares. How many shares outstanding are there? And they've been coming off by about a half a percent to maybe 1% a year the last five years. So if you think about earnings per share, the contribution from less shares outstanding is like a half a percent to the earnings growth. So that's not really the story. What it is doing, though, and this is valuable as well, is it's, it's removing share creep. So normally you would have seen two, three, maybe even four percent incremental shares outstanding through either share grants or bad acquisitions using stock. Yeah. So they're removing that, if you like, dilution that would have yeah. occurred otherwise. So there is value to it, but it's not really contributing to earnings. Mm -hmm. It's preventing the dilution of the earnings. How distorted, one final question, how distorted is the Dow? The new Vogue, you know, it used to be there was Buffett with an expensive share, and now the new Vogue is we're never going to split, which, you know, is fine. I get it. But does that mean the Dow is, you know, it's what we follow, 23,430, futures up 111. Okay, but is it as distorted as it's ever been? Well, I, again, we tend to use the S&P 500 sure. more because it's a broader index. Um and the, you can do equally weighted shares as well if you wanted to. Use a value line arithmetic. Um, so I, we don't focus that much on the Dow. The Dow is a residual for us. It's less of a determining yeah. factor. We don't do earnings estimates for the Dow because it's just yeah. too limited when you have 30 names. Where are you quickly on uh, General Electric and the industrials? I know you're not going to comment. I won't on comment on the company sure. specifically, but um, we have we had been earlier in the year overweight capital goods. We're kind of neutral Right now, we think selectively there's some really good names. Industrial activity is yeah. picking up and likely to stay strong. You know, my background was yeah. a machinery analyst, so I kind of like the old cyclical names that I used to cover. Um, but some of them have run pretty strong already, and we've got to be a little bit more careful. Uh, I've been through this whole interview, folks, here on the, the surveillance internet. I've been looking at hockey news. I just did a word search, Canadians and Lefkovich, and the, the, maybe next week. <laughs> Maybe a couple more losses. It, it might, you know, I'm, I'm open, Mr. Molson, anytime. Very good. Mr. Molson, <laughs> thank you for listening up and come back this morning. Mr. Lefkovich is with Citigroup, of course, uh, melding equities into all the other things uh, that we covered. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.